This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Wigs. Uh, we kick off Season 3 with an emergency episode tonight brought to you from across New South Wales. Uh, we're back in lockdown as per usual. Uh, it's not per usual, but, you know, for a lovely change of scenery. His Worship, Stephen Lawrence in Dubbo. Can you please introduce yourself? Hey, mate. Good to be here. I wish we were in person, uh, but we're not. Touch other times. What a, what, a, what a dying shame. What a dying shame that is. Uh, or maybe I should say crying shame. I'll leave it up to you. It's doing it to you, Jim. It's all about death. Exactly. Felicity Graham up north in Lennox Head. How are you doing up there? Uh, I'm in paradise, really. It's magical up here. No complaints from me. Good to be with you guys. Are you on lockdown? What's going on? Are you restricted movements? What's happening? I am not on lockdown because I've been out of Sydney for more than 14 days. Oh, nice one. So there's no stay-at-home in regional New South Wales, Jim. However, if you go to Sydney... On any date after the 21st of June, you're on stay at home uh, for two weeks after that date. So for me, I went to Sydney on the 21st of June. Then I came home. I was on lockdown for two weeks. I had to go to Sydney then on the 15th day for essential work. I've been on stay at home ever since. This is interfering in my mayoral duties. This is ridiculous, mate. You're the mayor of Dubbo. I mean, can't they have a heart? Um, A lot of teams meetings. Let's put it that way. Oh, well, that's probably that's probably beneficial for them, may I say, uh, having known you in person for quite a while. In lockdown in Sydney, <laughs> Manny, how are you doing, sir? Hey, Jim, I am surviving. Is how I'm doing. I'm, you know, I feel sorry for my brothers and sisters who are in the deeper lockdown in southwestern Sydney. You know, dead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Shout out to them. Um, well, in this episode. The Whigs, and uh, probably not me, will discuss this latest lockdown laws uh, that have been hastily put together um, in New South Wales, particularly Greater Sydney, as mentioned by, by Manny just then. Whilst New South Wales listeners, of course, uh, you know, will find this interesting, the Whigs think that the issues like the right to silence, the right against self-incrim- self-incrimination, policing in the time of COVID in general, and the rule of law, it's all interesting. It all needs to be discussed. These are the people that do it. This is a special emergency broadcast, as we've said, we're going to kick it off. We, these guys know what is going down. They haven't been consulted on the health orders, but they know how to debunk them. Mr. Emmanuel Kirkasharian, take it away, sir. Thank you, Peter. Jim. Thank you that, for that for that rousing introduction. Um, look, there's so just things. for the record, Manny's wearing a cap on backwards. It's true, and a hoodie with my Kung Fu Masters logo on it. It um, looks like a, a irascible teenager. <laughs> Which I've been accused of being. Um, so, so a couple of things to say to start. What follows is not legal advice, and of course that's true of all our podcasts. But I note it now, especially because I've had a lot of requests from solicitors, and they've had a lot of requests from clients uh, about what the ins and outs of what these laws are and what they mean, what these orders are. Don't rely on this as legal advice. Seek advice, as you'll hear in the course of this discussion. These laws are so bloody confusing but it's not easy to say how they apply in any particular case. Um, And we actually don't intend to set out all the laws in full. Nobody has the kind of time to set out all of the COVID orders in full. We'll find out how many there are. There's so many. 
Um, so I just wanted to underscore that. And the other thing I wanted to say, because I think it's important in a time where I think a lot of people in Sydney in particular are afraid, is that for my money, I think everyone's going to be okay. If you're listening to this, statistically at least, you're probably not going to die from SARS-CoV-2 Delta. Um, you're probably not even going to end up in hospital. The Republic is not going to fall. Um, in this podcast, you're going to hear some things that might well concern you. They certainly concern me. And we'll be focusing on the problems with these orders and the law and the loss of rights and the other things that go with that. And many lawyers have been contacting me afraid and worse disillusioned and thinking nothing can be done and, and we're really at the end. And, and for my part, I have faith in our democracy and our ability to overcome and recover the mistakes that are being made by people who I know are well-meaning. Uh, and so, as I said, while I think we'll be pretty critical um, and warn of dangers, I'm certainly not without at hope and I, I don't think the walls are falling. I don't think the whole thing's crumbling just yet. Um, so... The first thing I want to talk about is what I think is the most egregious part of the set of orders that have recently come into place. These are hoarded, uh, orders under the Public Health Act. As of when? So we're recording on uh, Sunday the 18th of July, 8.12pm. As of when? What are we talking about here? So um, oh, the date that the, the, the one I'm going to talk about is started on the 13th of July and there's actually been a subsequent order since then. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think another two, Manny, because there's another one that kicks in tomorrow that's got the same provision in it, I think, or the provision that you're about to talk about. Yeah. There's one that starts at midnight tonight and will, will be in force effectively from the beginning of the 19th of July, Monday the 19th of July. But there's also one that is in force as at now from, I think it was made at about 6.10 tonight. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's they're coming in thick and fast. It's important to stay on top of the most recent versions but yeah the one that we're going to talk about is what's going to be enforced from tomorrow i think yeah that's yeah. that's right and so in one of the things that, that they put an exception they passed this law or they sorry it's not a law they made this order and then they made an exception to, on the order until monday but um uh, uh, let me just take a step back. Older listeners of the Wings <clears throat> might remember times when, you know, there was films and movies and you'd see this armed guy, invariably a man, walk up to some people and demand their papers, saying something like, papers, please. And at a stroke of a pen on the 13th of July, the Minister for Health turned New South Wales into a state where armed police officers can walk up to any citizen and effectively demand papers, please. Uh, until that time, they were able to ask you your address. That was a special COVID law that was passed by Parliament, but now they can demand your papers and a few other things which I'll get into. So what I'm talking about is Clause 24D um, of the Public Health COVID-19 Temporary Movement and Gathering Restrictions 2021. Um, what it does is it removes our right to silence, without any safeguards, and it removes, crucially in my opinion, the right against self-incrimination, and I'll come to explain those more. Um, the primary purported purpose of the order is to <coughs> mandate testing of certain workers from certain parts of Sydney and to control the movement of people from certain parts of Sydney. Um, that's loosely defined, but we'll, we'll call it as 
southwestern Sydney, I think is the way that it's been described um, by health officials and the media and the government. Um, but there's a clause in this order, this 24D, and it says this, the minister directs that a person must, if requested to do so by a police officer, so let's just pause here, it specifies a police officer, not a health officer, but a police officer, provide information, including proof of residence, which one may well, you can sub in the word ID there for my money, um, and evidence that a person has been tested for COVID-19, so your health information. And just before I move on from there, note that it uses the words including proof, so not limited to. So you have to provide information including those things to allow a decision to be made about whether the person is an affected worker or a Greater Sydney worker, and if the person is, whether the person has complied with the part. And it goes on to say in subsection two that you must ensure that the information is both true and accurate, right? Now, on the face of it, that clause requires any person in New South Wales to answer, in my view, almost any question which might provide information about that goes to those things, whether they're not an affected worker and whether they've complied with the part and in, which may well include details about their employment, <clears throat> their employer, their recent movements and obviously aspects of their medical history that is their testing for COVID-19 at a minimum. So, Manny, maybe we should just go through what some of the particulars are of this part of the public health direction so that it frames... The purpose of it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So this is part 4A of um, that public health order, which is titled Special Directions for Certain Areas of Greater Sydney. And then it defines in the first clause of that part the meaning of affected area, which means the local government area of the city of Fairfield, which is in southwest Sydney, and then also a local government area specified by the chief health officer by notice, which I understand to be also the local government areas of Bankstown, Canterbury and Liverpool. Mm. So that's the area that we're talking about as being the affected area. And then... The next part is a direction in relation to the testing of workers from affected areas. So that applies to someone who's defined as an affected worker, which basically means someone who lives in the affected area or who's staying in temporary accommodation in the affected area. And then the chief health officer can also specify other people who fall into that category. And then the direction is this, that an affected worker must not enter premises for work in a local government area outside of the affected area unless they have in the preceding 72 hours been tested for COVID-19 and has evidence of the test available for inspection on request by an employer or occupier of premises or a police officer 
And then it gives an example that an SMS text message or email from the testing organisation can be evidence that a test has been taken. And then further there's a direction to occupiers of premises other than residential premises that they must not permit an affected worker to enter or remain on their premises unless the affected worker has carried out the relevant COVID-19 testing. And then it goes on in relation to testing of workers from the Greater Sydney area, which we should say is a very large area that might not be immediately considered by people to um, encompass Wollongong, the Blue Mountains, um, mm-hmm. Shell Harbour, Central Coast, but that but those areas are included in what's defined as Greater Sydney. And that's got this idea of buffer zones, isn't it? Yeah, so mm. but it's quite a big area. And so then that part of the direction is that if you're a greater Sydney worker, so someone who lives in Sydney or is staying in Sydney, then you must not enter premises for work that are more than 50 kilometres outside greater Sydney unless you have had a test within the seven days before and you have that evidence to prove that you've been tested. And, again, occupiers of premises, there's that corresponding direction that they must not permit a Greater Sydney worker to enter or remain at their premises unless they've had the test and got the evidence of it. So they're trying to minimise the movement of workers from the affected area into Greater Sydney, from Greater Sydney into areas a certain distance out of Greater Sydney. I think what they're trying to do by those particular... Um, orders is to catch unsymptomatic people who have COVID by requiring them to do regular testing um, in order to keep moving out of the affected area um, for the purposes of work. So they can still work, but they need to have this regular testing. Um, And then the next part is the exception to um, Clause 20. So Clause 20 is is the stay-at-home order that kind of just generally applies in Greater Sydney, but then there's a special order for this more um, localised area of Fairfield, Liverpool, Canterbury, Bankstown, that... Um, Basically, you must not, for the purposes of work, travel outside of the local government area in which you reside or you're staying. So do you, so do you think, Manny, that if a police officer says to you, have you had your test within the seven-day period, and you say to them, no, I haven't, then I think you would be in breach of the public health order, right, because you've moved in a circumstance when you shouldn't have moved. Potentially in breach. Yeah, potentially in breach. Still reasonable excuse carve out. Still reasonable excuse, yeah, sure. So do you think that in those circumstances they could use those admissions in a prosecution of you for breach of the public health order? So it's interesting. The, the, The order itself says that the reason you are giving them that information, a police officer that information, is to allow that officer to make a decision as to whether you have complied with the part. So that's yeah, but I think, that purpose of it. Rather but I don't than- think, yeah, but I don't think that means 
that the intention or the purpose for acquiring the information is necessarily to mount some sort of investigation or prosecution in terms of criminal proceedings, wouldn't it be more, for example, to not allow you to engage in a particular movement that you want to or to tell you that you shouldn't be where you are and therefore you should return, for example, to the affected area? Well, like, isn't it a, a health-motivated health measure uh, in that sense? I, it, I don't, well, I don't know. But if it is that, it hasn't provided for any of the protections that are otherwise provided in the Act. Mm. So if there's an entire part of the Act that deals with enforcement of the Act. It's Part 8. And that has within it, the, it, it grants the Secretary of the Department of Health the power to effectively compel you to speak. But it also has the corresponding protection to the right around self-incrimination so that if you are compelled to speak, that cannot be used against you. Now, but you what- couldn't particularly use that in this situation, could you? Like, for example, if you've got a situation where you've drawn a line around a particular part of Sydney yep. because you want to stop works from the affected zone who haven't been tested within the time period from being somewhere else in Greater Sydney, yep. the Secretary of the Department can't exactly give an efficacious direction if a police officer's got someone stopped on the side of the road and they're like, should you be where you are? It's sort of not... It wouldn't be sort of practical to use those provisions, would it? So the police already have the power. Well, the answer to your question is no. The police already have the power to demand your address. So, under what provision, Manny? Under the because I think health Part Eight rela- um, relates to authorised officers, which I think. Um, no, I'm sure they sort do. of takes the Part Eight only applies to, like, health officials, basically. Um, not, I don't think police officers for that purpose are defined as authorised officers. Uh, I'm fairly certain they made a particular provision dealing with the power of police to demand your address, etc. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, so they've amended Section 112, I think. So that says an authorised officer may direct a person whom the authorised officer suspects to have contravened or to be contravening any provision of this Act or the regulations or who is apparently in charge of premises where such a contravention is occurring or evidently has occurred to state his or her full name and residential address and if the person is not the occupier, the name of the occupier of the premises. And then in this section, authorised officer includes a police officer. But you've got to have a reasonable suspicion. That's right. Yeah. And, but that Which you might not. You might not in these circumstances, right? Like if it's some sort of police line and the police want to check whether people moving out of the affected area should be, they're not going to have a reasonable suspicion that any particular person is in breach, right? But they might want to check every particular person. I, I, my concern is not whether or not it's necessary to empower the police to demand papers from people. My concern is that this has been done by executive fiat without consulting parliament, Mm. seemingly in contradiction to the law that parliament has passed in part eight of the Public Health Act. Mm. That's my concern. There's also no protection. If you want to make 
in okay. terms of visibility into evidence either. That's right. I think that's a big problem too because that's- it's sort of there's those cases on, you know, the traffic power where you've got to identify the driver and so forth. Yeah. yeah. There's those cases where they say <clears throat> that statutory kind of requirement means that you can't make an unfairness objection, for example, under Section 90 of the Evidence Act because something's not relevantly unfair if the statute allows it. So I would have thought without any specific sort of provision, if this is a valid order, which it might not be, but if it is a valid order, then I think courts would generally sort of take the view that it is admissible against you because there's a law that required you to state those things and it's a law without exception. Well, it's not a law. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's not a law. Just let's be clear, it's an order. It's not this well, list. Yeah. It's not delegated legislation. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. The ministerial question. direction of that's which if you have notice and you fail to comply with the ministerial direction, it is an offence. That's mm-hmm. right. But it's different to saying it's a law for many reasons, including that you're not presumed to know it. But also, it's not a law, and so that, to my mind, engages the whole Lee X7 kind of thing, where if there's an exercise of power that compels speech, you cannot... The the courts will look to the Act to find out whether or not that you can then be prosecuted on that material. So Mm. for my part, if if I was... representing someone who was charged for speech, sorry, charged on the basis of an admission that they'd made to a police officer under this provision, I would say, I would strongly argue that not only could the admission not be used, but any prosecutor who was aware of it would be barred from prosecuting it. Well, it's interesting to look at the terms of Section 114 of the Act. So if an authorised officer puts a demand on a person to provide certain information or documents, which can extend beyond name and address, or if a police officer uses the power under Section 112 to direct someone um, to state their name and address, then Section 114 kicks in in the sense that, well, first of all, it's it's an offence under Section 113 to fail to comply with a direction. But Section 114 says um, a person's not guilty of an offence of failing to comply with a direction under this part to furnish documents or information or to answer a question unless the person was warned on that occasion that a failure to comply is an offence. Then secondly, a person is not excused from a direction under this part to furnish documents or information or to answer a question on the ground that the document information or answer might incriminate them. So the right to silence. Self-incrimination. Yeah. Yep. But in subsection three, any information furnished or answer given by a natural person in compliance with a direction under this part is not admissible in evidence against the person in criminal proceedings if the person objected at the time to doing so on the ground that it might incriminate them or they were not warned on that occasion that the person may object to furnishing the information or giving the answer on the ground that it might incriminate them. So there's that built-in protection in respect of demands or directions to give information under Part 8 of the Act which is not this, right? Yeah. It's not this. And yeah. Part 8 is the part, Part 8 is titled Enforcement of Act. 
So that's the part that they're supposed to use to enforce the Act. And what the Minister has done has bootstrapped enforcement powers into by way of an order. Mm. So I, I, I think that's ultra-virus. It's, it's at least arguably ultra-virus, beyond power. Um, so they might need a new part if they want to do this, a new part that's concerned with these types of directions. Um, mm. You know, if you think about it, though, in terms of the, you know, the derivative use of these things that you say, if they, I mean, let's imagine they create a new part and it contains an offence of, um, or it contains a power to give a direction that a person must provide information in relation to their movement. If you then put in a part that says that's not admissible against you in criminal proceedings, how would the police enforce what's, what is arguably required, which is you need to be able to say to people, have you had a COVID test? You must tell me. You know, do you live in this particular place? You must prove that and ensure that people have a motive to comply. So there is a section that I think again was added because of COVID that permits some permits the police if someone is in breach to arrest them and take them home. And that's how they would enforce it. So first time you get arrested and taken home. Second time, well, they've already got you because they mm. they have the fact that you were outside on a previous occasion. They have the fact that you have been told. They don't have to rely on anything you've said. They can prove the case against you. Assuming things haven't changed. Assuming, well, indeed. I mean, there's that. Assuming things haven't changed. But so, but my, my bugbear is like, I'm old enough to remember, barely old enough to remember the debates about an Australia card. And even though in practice everyone carries ID now. Well, I think that's actually not an assumption that we can make. Well, maybe that's right. And, and now we're in a. And, and especially ID that has a proof of address. Yeah, that's particularly people from low or particular socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah, like people who don't have a driver's licence, for example. I don't think they're walking around necessarily with ID. Yeah. And and, and, and and the state, the government, the executive government, under some delegated order that's not even a regulation, not even put before parliament, has changed the entire fabric of, has changed a strand in the fabric of our society without daring to put it before Parliament. I mean, practically speaking, it might be worthwhile people just carrying in their pocket or in their handbag or whatever a letter addressed to them with their address on it or, you know, an electricity bill or something if they don't have ID. Yeah, but who I mean, the practicalities of that. Well, can I just say, where what gets what law gets uh, you know wins the uh, the tussle here? So you've got a police officer who stops you and says, "Okay, I've, I suspect you're in breach of a of a health order. I need to see uh, proof of address." They don't need to have suspicion, Jim. Mm. Okay, okay, but, but let's just assume that, that they're getting they're getting you know uh, questioned and they want to issue a fine or a notice. Um, they ask, can I see proof of address? And you say, I don't carry ID on me. They they don't say, well, you must carry ID on you because a health order is not going to get – I mean, there's there's no law that says you must carry ID. Well, the public health order, to the extent that it 
applies to, for example, people from Fairfield, Bankstown, Canterbury, Liverpool, requires them to have evidence of the test available for inspection on request by an employer or occupier of premises or a police officer. In other words, they do need to carry around that kind of um, evidence with them. And on the question of identification, proving your residence and so on, I mean, I think if you actually don't have ID, that may well fall into a reasonable excuse category. Or you, you can provide, provide information, the information to which the is, police. I live in this particular place. Exactly. You provide the information to the police but don't have proof of it. I mean, I think you're going as far as you can in compliance. Mm, right. So um, it would be pretty rich for it to be considered a breach if you actually say, hi, my name is Felicity Graham. I live at X Street in Y suburb, and mm. this is me. Yeah, but I mean, your ID, mate. You know the rules. You, well, why aren't you carrying your ID? Sure. I mean, police police have their Moby Pole um, devices. They can go and do a check. Um, you know, they have access to the RMS records, whatever. I'm not saying that um, you, you might still find yourself um, in strife with a particular police officer who takes a particular attitude yeah, and that's yeah. a real problem and a real concern, but, yeah. And here's your pin. Here's your, here's your fine. I, I've checked my computer. I believe that you live where you said, but you didn't have your ID, so here's your $1,100 fine. Of course that's... I don't, I don't know if I've got a problem with this, guys, I've got to say. Like, I, I am sympathetic to the idea that it should have gone to Parliament and the argument that it's ultra-virus could well be right. But Parliament at the moment is not sitting. I mean, I suppose they could have reconvened it. But the sort of policy which is to create a legal requirement that non-compliance with is a breach of the order, which requires you to provide that sort of information in the circumstances seems to me likely to be a sort of justified limitation on, you know, the general sort of position, which is you shouldn't have to incriminate yourself. You shouldn't sort of have to, you know, have your liberty interfered with to be questioned. You shouldn't have to do all sorts of things. But, you know, it's in a public health act or it's a creature of a public health act. Um, we're in a public health emergency, you know, derogations on rights are classically justified in situations like this. I'm just sort of struggling to think how else you do it. Like how else do you create a regime where you can ensure that people are able to, you know, their movement over these sort of boundaries or borders that have been created because of this outbreak are able to be properly regulated? Like how do you do that? Well, circumstances where there's a lot of opposition sort of growing and you can't assume that everyone's just going to go along for the ride. Well, I think if your people are not going along with the ride and you're in a representative democracy, either you send out people to talk to them, right, and you treat them as the human beings they are with the respect for their human rights, or you find another way, right? This is not this is not beating COVID. This is not protecting us from COVID. It is exposing us to things that we to, – to the loss of rights that we have had – 
for centuries and that for people have like fought and died for, you know, that, that papers please trope that I started with, that was something that would have scared that, that two, three generations ago, people were literally going to fight against. That was the, that was the message. Like we don't live in a country where people can demand your papers. That's important to us. Do you think remains double, sorry, Manny, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I just think it remains important. Now, you know, I, you, you hesitate to invoke the deaths that have occurred in wars, but what, 5% of the Australian population died in the world wars, something like that, to fight against provisions like this. And if the risk is 1% death of our population, perhaps, perhaps we should be having a conversation about that because what we're giving up, two things, one is this fundamental right we've had forever. Two is the right to have our representatives discuss and impose that upon us rather than just have it imposed on us by executive fiat. And those but we haven't had that right in an unqualified way. I mean, the right to silence is limited in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's limited in respect of traffic matters. It's limited in respect of turning up to ICAC. I mean, true, it's fairly unusual that you have to incriminate yourself in respect of, you know, conduct that might lead to criminal prosecution, but not totally unusual. I mean, traffic's a good example of that. You know, people are forced to admit to things that are used to prove dangerous driving causing death all the time. So it is an important right sort of internationally and part of our legal system, but, man, I don't know if people really fought and died for it, did they? They fought and sort of died for a whole lot of things, but... You you don't... I don't have to be... Until this regulation was passed... I didn't have to stop, right? No police police officer has no power to stop me without any suspicion for walking down the street, right? So that's another right that's gone. I now have to actually stop when a police... Now, I'm the sort of person who would stop if a police officer asked me to, but I like having that right. It's important. And, again, I just I just don't think what whatever the justification is, even if I accept that there's a justification for asking for the provision of this information, there is no justification to use that to prosecute you. And if you're going to make it... The two are linked, though, aren't they? But the two are linked in the sense that you can... How do you enforce it? By putting in a clause that says, you must accompany the police officer back to your premises, right? And that this information cannot be used by the police officer in any other way. Those I suppose you could also do this. You could you could put in a requirement to give the information, make non-compliance with that an offence, but make inadmissible for an earlier breach that information. So therefore, so non-compliance with providing the information is an offence because you're subject to a direction by a minister to give it. That's right, but you could you could limit the use to which your confession is to be put. Yeah. Sure. So, for example but still force people to comply with it. So if you don't give the confession, i.e., yes, I do live in the affected area, no, I haven't had my test, then you're in breach of a requirement to give that information. Yeah. No, no, you wouldn't be I if you give that information. Sorry, what's that? You wouldn't be in breach of the requirement to give the information if you give it. I know, but if you don't give it, then there's a separate offence of not giving it. So sure. there's still an incentive for people to comply, yeah, yeah. but you don't have the confession used against you. I mean, that would be one way to deal with it, perhaps. It's a and I think way. that's the way that the Part 8 of the Public Health Act deals with it. In other words, you can have a demand put on you, 
but it's got safeguards. It's got to be in writing, for example, in most circumstances. It's got to either, if not in writing and it concerns a police officer, be based on some kind of suspicion um, of a breach. And if you give an answer that tends to incriminate you over objection then or you weren't warned mm-hmm. about it, then it can't be used against you in respect of that breach. And yeah. But, mate, the other thing is, so this direction, even though it's in the part 4A which concerns partic- a particular area of greater Sydney, it actually applies across the whole state. Yep. So someone in Dubbo can be stopped and asked to provide their address and their name and proof of their residence um, and so on. Um, And I think, you know, partly there's urgency and these orders need to be made quickly, but also that means that there just hasn't been time to explain to people what these orders are. I mean, this is, I think, pretty... um, a pretty big step and so in circumstances where people wouldn't necessarily contemplate that they've got to provide this kind of information. Well, Isn't it an emergency? I think most people, most people assume that if the police ask them their name and address, they've just got to give it. Isn't it an emergency though? Like isn't it, you've got this Delta variant that they're saying that New South Wales is out of control because they waited three days longer than Victoria to do the lockdown or whatever it is. Like it's moving really quickly, it's hyper-infectious, is there time to convene parliament to create these carefully crafted exceptions? Like, isn't it a legitimate case of act really quickly, draft it as well as you can? I don't know. What, yeah, but I think what that also means is that the police need to be properly trained in how to actually implement it in the field, which they're not being. You know, even with some of the really basic orders, they have been fining people in completely unreasonable circumstances. And, you know, I think police need to be better trained on this idea that there's a reasonable excuse carve-out because when they're actually dealing with the person, first of all, they often don't seem to be dealing with the person from a public health perspective. They just seem to be dealing with people from a criminal law perspective. In other words, there's this offence that's created in the books and I'm just going to implement it rather than trying to explain to people, you know, what's going on, the importance of it, encourage compliance, tell them to go home if they should be going home, you know, tell them to be wearing a mask if they should be a mask, facilitate compliance by, you know, providing access to people to those kind of things. So I think if you're going to do this on the run, which, you know, there's justification for doing these kind of things on the run because it's a fast-moving event, it's got to come with a realistic implementation, knowing that people aren't going to know what the orders are and what they yeah, have to do. But how do you train 20,000 police? I mean, um, just take a step back. How do you, how, why wasn't Parliament convened the moment that any kind of additional lockdown was put in place? Right? This is this a rule of law issue. Like these are fundamental, and we say fundamental, and fundamental things are the things that you don't throw out when you have an emergency. Emergency is not an answer to we're going to get rid of your fundamental rights by fiat. It's, it's no answer to that at all. Now, why aren't the parliamentarians debating this now? If you had to put it in place for 48 hours, put it into place for 48 hours. I don't agree with that, but do it. Where's parliament now? Why isn't there debate? And that's the, that's the real, like, 
you, I, I just, I can't. This is something that applies to every person. This makes every person in New South Wales required to carry identification. People will be fined for not carrying identification, no matter. And and in fact, on one view, that's precisely what it's trying to make you do. And we haven't had a debate about it. Mm. And even if it's an emergency, fine. Where's the debate? And also, these rules are so complicated. They're so unbelievably complicated mm. that who the hell knows what they the, the last one was the last one that I that there was one that came out um, yesterday that was gazetted an hour before it was meant to commence. They the one that they're all amending this temporary gathering and movement restrictions order. <clears throat> that one is I think now twenty eight pages long or something like that. Um, and there's like at least eight other sets of orders on the website. Mm-hmm. And this is not, as I say, it's not a law. We're not presumed to know it. Who the hell knows it? And who the hell are this time limited though? It does automatically repeal beginning of 31 July, which obviously could be extended. Sure. But it is intended to deal with a pretty short compass of time. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of its effect, efficacy, well, firstly, I think this, I think this is in part counterproductive because the real dodgers, the people who are actually going to be dodgy, are the ones who are going to get ID, they're going to get a letter saying they live somewhere else, mm. they're going to, you know, and then they're going to lie and you're going to have a co- – it's entirely possible that you will have people being dishonest because they know that if they're honest, they're going to be charged. And that's the precise opposite of the messaging that has been coming out of health and the government for the last few weeks in particular where they've been urging people to tell the truth. Now telling the truth has no protection. And that's frightening, you know. So, I mean, I, I've I've set out. I've I've sort of had a look at the order, um, which which is just incredible. The the it's the so badly drafted. Um, the definitions are just weird. Kiosk is defined. Landscaping material supplies are defined. Natural swimming pool is defined. There are so many definitions. So. You, in order for a lay person to understand this order, it's not that you can't just know what a kiosk is. You have to have the, the definition of a kiosk. Um, the definition of construction site, which was hastily brought in yesterday, me, construction site means a place of work, sorry, a place at which work, including related excavation, is being carried out to erect, demolish, extend or alter a building or structure but not work carried out in relation to a dwelling in which pers- a person is residing. So are people like moving into their half-built houses now in order to get allow the workers to be there? Does that order actually mean the person who's constructing it has to mean there is not clear? And does the person have to be there at the actual time it is being constructed at all times or not is not clear? Now, you might say, as we might expect that the police will treat this reasonably. But again, this is interfering with people's rights on such poxy definitions that, frankly, I, I used to draft, I used to instruct drafters. I've never seen drafting this bad at a parliamentary council. It's it's just insane, you know? Mm. I think it's a brave police officer, especially during the first gazetted orders to, to say that uh, 
uh, some retail was essential, some retail wasn't. I heard rumors of um, fines being issued to shops that particular officers deemed were non-essential. And I thought that was a bit bold yeah. on behalf of the officers. Yeah, so under so this term kind of essential um, reasons or, you know, essential items or things like that. Yeah, which which has since been perhaps, clarified. It's since been clarified, Flick. I should put that in. It's tonight, tonight time of recording. Uh, there's a list of shops that are able to operate. But it was very sketchy and vague for a long time. Yeah, but I've also heard that police were purporting to exercise a lawful search power mm. to search shopping bags of people leaving shops to check whether they had essential items in there um, or not, which, you know, is really problematic. But this sort of um, idea of something, an activity or thing that's essential, it's not actually in the, the public health order. That's what right. the public health order says is basically in its simplest form, you've got to stay at home mm. unless you have a reasonable excuse. And then it sets out in Schedule 1 to the public health direction a bunch of things that are deemed to be reasonable excuses. It's not an exhaustive list. And that concern, that that includes things like obtaining food or other goods or services if um, they're for the personal needs of the person's household or for other household purposes, including for vulnerable persons or pets. And unless it's not reasonably practical, no member of the person's household um, has already left um, on that day to obtain food or other goods and services. So one person out each day from each household is the sort of basic way of understanding that rule. Um, And then for the purposes of work, if it's not practicable to work from home, um, attending childcare, facilitating attendance at school or other educational institution, exercise, but there are a bunch of curtailments on how you can actually do that um, in terms of no more than 10 kilometres away from your house, Travelling in a private vehicle, no one else travelling in the vehicle with you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, those kind of things. Medical care, health supplies, fulfilling carers' responsibilities, including um, particularly getting a COVID nineteen vaccination, um, and then going to certain permitted gatherings like funerals or memorial services. Um, and so on. And there are a few others, you know, donating blood and stuff. So but there's nothing about essential in there. There's nothing about essential in there in the in whole public Victoria, I remember when Victoria had their first sort of major lockdown, I think they only kept open chemists, supermarkets, uh, bottle shops, and maybe one or two other things. Whereas in New South Wales at the moment, like luxury shoe shops, are not restricted on operating, are they? Mm. Because that's that's a, that's a service or a good that you might need to leave your house to get, I assume. Because but they have to do click and collect, don't they? So it's, it's so confusing. There's there's a class of shop that has to do click and collect, or you can only walk, walk up to the door and get it. I'm not quite sure what what that's what those sorts of businesses are. Maybe mm-hmm. they're restaurants. Um, but there's a class that that applies to. Interestingly, on the face of it. 
The minister directs that an employer must require an employee to work at an employee's place of residence. So if you read that literally, they have the, the employee has to require you to work <laughs> as opposed to as to require you to work. So, Stevie, to add to your question about retail premises, the the order that well, it's certainly going to be in place from midnight tonight. We're recording on Sunday, the seventeenth, um, but it, it may well have been in place just in recent hours or days as well. So, the minister directs that retail premises must not be open to members of the public in Greater Sydney except the following, and then there's a list supermarkets, grocery stores, shops that predominantly sell food or drinks, chemists, pharmacies, kiosks, whatever that means, but Mm. obviously is the definition, Um, shops that predominantly sell office supplies, pet supplies, newspapers, alcohol, maternity baby supplies, medical or pharmaceutical supplies, food and drink premises, but there's an exception to that, cellar door premises, but there's an exception to that, hardware and building supplies, landscaping material supplies, rural supplies, Mm -hmm. timber yards, garden centres, plant nurseries, vehicle hire premises and shops that predominantly carry out repairs Mm -hmm. mobile phones. But click collect can, can occur for other retailers or they can operate to, um, deliver goods. Mm. Also, I think dolphin-watching vessels can still operate in certain circumstances. Thank God. Under the, under the like literally, I'm not quite sure, but there's a carve-out for dolphin-watching vessels in some way. I, I think that was the Natalie Portman, Sacha Baron Cohen excuse that was used for their recent um, boat. I, Last I, weekend, I saw a pod of about 30 dolphins off, off the Cape. Nice. Yeah, they're amazing animals. But and it, you're free to inspect. One of the things that, that's interesting, and I think, Flick, you had thought about this, is what's the purpose of these restrictions, um, particularly in the context of there being no transmissions outdoors um, and the social harm that they're doing and things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these orders obviously, um, you know, their intended purpose is to keep us safer from a public health perspective, whether that be preventing actual transmission from one person to another or preventing someone from um, being hospitalised because the the numbers that are transmitted, you know, inevitably will involve some people that go to hospital or indeed if the numbers get um, or continue to be as high as, you know, some deaths will occur. So there's that public health goal. But they obviously do quite a substantial degree of social harm Mm. when people are prevented from working, people are prevented from um, leaving their homes in circumstances where they they may have a whole range of social or other needs to do so. I think that, to me, what I think that really comes down to is a few things. One, this kind of government decision needs to be backed up with sufficient support for the worst affected people and for the people who will be really substantially affected by it, particularly some of our most vulnerable and disadvantaged communities in southwest Sydney. Mm. 
And so, for example, I mean, the government has announced that the federal government has announced some financial assistance to people. But if you're receiving any kind of Centrelink benefit, like a family payment or like youth allowance, um, but you also have a casual job that you now can't go to, um, you're not eligible for any of the financial assistance from the government because of that mere fact of that Centrelink benefit. And the financial benefit that the government's giving a, a weekly amount of $600, I mean, it's it's lower than the minimum wage. So we're not, the, the assistance I think is not there to back up the public health response. The other thing I think that's really important is the messaging around this stuff. I mean, so much of the public discourse has descended into this blaming and sort of dehumanisation of people and treating people with a complete lack of human dignity in circumstances where, you know, most of the transmission that is occurring in the community, if not, you know, just about all of it, I haven't heard of any cases that have actually been transmitted in recent times in this outbreak through a deliberate, flagrant breach. Mm. You know, everyone's going about doing what they're, what everyone else is doing, which is trying to live, trying to work, trying to support their families. And if they happen to have COVID and not know it and give it to someone else, you know, they shouldn't be pilloried for it. And I just think we need to really examine our own attitudes to to this whole pandemic in terms of maintaining some human dignity for people, promoting yeah. human dignity. Yeah, and that, that's where things like forced ID production are just antithetical to that. But it strikes me as particularly the one, the impugned provision we've been talking about, the ID one, but also generally, is that these orders really represent a loss of trust or the ruling class has lost trust in its population and the population is assumed to have or believed to have lost trust in its ruling classes. That is to say, we no longer trust you people to follow and be honest about what you're doing and to do the right thing anymore, so we're going to force you. And this whole, you know, I just, I just I, you know, we went from we, we've had people begging for clarity on what essential services are. We had uh, entire two other lockdowns. We had the lockdowns in the north and we had the original lockdown, which didn't have these provisions. Why are these provisions here now? Because either we think that people don't follow what the government is telling them to do and we need to police them, or we think they're not, or they're in fact doing that, right? So either we think they're doing it and they're not doing it, or they're in fact doing it. Either way, that's a societal breakdown because what you've got is the government and the people that it's governing no longer wanting the same thing and there's no outlet. Where are the members? If, in fact, it is the case that there's a whole bunch of people in southwestern Sydney who don't want these orders who, who or what, don't mind them but need to go out, like are willing to risk their lives and their health to go out, if that's true, where are their members speaking up on their behalfs or on the alternative convincing them otherwise? Like, where's that dialogue? Why does this have to be done with criminal laws and orders that are done at the stroke of a pen? Why can't it be done another way? And I think... I actually thought... I think part of the reason... 
I think part of the reason, though, as well, is that not everyone knows about the audits, right? So when you're looking at it from, like, a policing point of view, they're interacting with people who don't necessarily know the order and understand the regulation. They don't have a power to sort of coercively interact with them. Just don't know they're going to be in a position to achieve the public health measure. Why not? Why can't you? Why does any interaction with the police prima facie? Because a lot of people don't want to don't want to tell the police things. Well, particularly I don't when they know. don't really understand the reason why, and they're not really thinking about it. Like I, th- I don't believe that during this time, most people, even I don't think a lot of people, to use the phrase you use, Stephen, don't want to interact with the police in order to avoid. COVID laws. I think most people, the vast majority of people, are willing to interact and willing to be honest. And, and Mate, I, think, I think, yeah, I think that's true in a lot of ways. But the people, you know, and it, like this, in a way, becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because of this issue. We've got this eradication sort of model, right? Which means that if we get a hundred cases that spread around, and then in a week we have a thousand cases the economic effect is completely catastrophic because everything shuts down, right? Yeah. So if you look at these measures in terms of their justifiability from the point of view of that, the economic impact, the consequences of this, of one person slipping through and then 100 cases a day starting, it might seem quite warranted, but there's a bit of a bootstraps issue there as well because that's all premised on the impact all based on this eradication thesis, you know, the shutdown thesis or theory of it all. But I suspect there's other people out there that would say we shouldn't have that eradication approach. Um, Yeah. And therefore the consequences of one case slipping out actually shouldn't be that catastrophic. Um, And also that's where you sort of get into these old GG Foster arguments about how do you measure social harms and how do you measure you know, sort of beneficial outcomes. Uh, at the moment, you know, it's being measured through through cases per day, basically. It's mm. pretty crude. And it's really crude. And we don't have a good measure for balancing the social benefit or social harm of a particular number of COVID cases or what that might then mean for the future if you take certain action or you don't take certain action. And then also a measure for the social benefit or harm from the measures that you do take. Because, you know, these measures, whatever they might achieve, they are doing harm Mm. as well. The other interesting thing is we're a victim of our own kind of model in the sense that apparently a big part of the reason why we don't have the vaccines as soon as other places is we've got very low rates of community transmission. So we'll be vaccinated very late because we've adopted the eradication approach. Mm. Um, But it's also caused vaccination hesitancy because people think, oh, well, there's no urgency for me to get the vaccine because we have got no COVID, basically. mm. A lot of people saying that, I reckon. And I reckon it's also been part of this whole, you know, quite damaging discussion about the difference between Pfizer and AstraZeneca and people getting this idea, you know, presented to them that AstraZeneca is dangerous to them because of this, in absolute terms, minuscule risk of an adverse blood clotting um, 
outcome. But people think, well, why would I get AstraZeneca in circumstances where the government's telling me I can get Pfizer in three months' time or something and there's no COVID here? Mm. But I just think that all of that has been so woefully done that the, you know, the message messaging just really needs to be everyone needs to get vaccinated as quickly as possible with whatever vaccine is available to them and government needs to ramp up supply massively so that people can meaningfully access it and this is this is where i come back to our government is in this case failing us and when i say government i don't mean you know the latest bergitlian government i mean the organs of government because these issues should have been debated 12 months ago and thought about the measures should be in place. We shouldn't be going off of crude numbers. If the decision was to do this, we should have had the messaging out there to say, hey, look, people are dying. You, st- uh, you know, this is what the effects of it are. You need to take this vaccine. We know that, you, you know, there's this small chance that you might get blood clot. All of it should have been done in the way if we were going to go down this path. Alternatively, we might have gone down a different path and we might have accepted some deaths and some harm in order to avoid a greater ongoing harm and the deaths coming later because there's still going to be, it's one point or another, there's going to be, the virus is going to run through our society. It may run through our society through vaccinated people, but the vaccine doesn't stop necessarily the virus and we may do better. We may have less deaths then, but in the interim, the harm that's been done is untold and it's not we're going to do this for three months and flatten the curve anymore. That's how this was sold to us. And now we've moved on to this model that we're getting rid of fundamental rights for, even in, even if it's only for a week, even if it's only for a day, without having any debate about it. So the organs of government, in my view, need to step up and we need to start talking about it. And I, I, my, my, my fear is that people are so afraid of the personal risks of gaining COVID and, and the fact that our government has put us in the position where we've got a poorly vaccinated society, that they're not willing to stand up for the things that they would otherwise stand up for. And that's just a recipe for the mistakes to be to keep going. Mm. There's a lot of exceptionalism, isn't there? Like every day of the week people take risks that, not only involve personal risk but involve risks uh, on a broader basis and also have ad- we have adverse outcomes in the community across a whole range of different factors, including things that could be prevented through better policy um, measures, policy responses. But we've kind of got this singular focus that is demonstra- that has developed as a result of this pandemic where, Everyone's just focused on, you know, some singular number. Is it 112 cases today or is it 97 cases today and how many were infectious in the community? And this really singular focus that I think kind of warps people's sense of comparative risk and and comparative outcomes across a whole range of different social and, and public health factors. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Well, look, it's fascinating. Uh, it's ongoing. 
Uh, I don't think you've heard the last of the wigs on this particular area, depending on uh, the gazetted orders as they come through. But I just want to thank you all for your time tonight on a Sunday night emergency broadcast, as I put at the start of the show. Manuel Kukasharian, Felicity Graham, Stephen Lawrence. Look, I'm not even going to go to fun things because who the f*** has anything fun to talk about tonight? <laughs> not me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks Jim thanks all thanks Jim thanks guys ladies and gentlemen that was the wigs and we will be back as soon as possible thank you very much since recording this episode New South Wales Police have announced they will be conducting ID checks on people in the street and asking citizens to produce identification Deputy Commissioner Malcolm Lanyon said there will be more police on the streets in a ramp up of their regime to ensure compliance with the health orders listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes hey it's jim Minns here for the final time i just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on twitter at wigs podcast and it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim Minns.